Autism through cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. Please remember, we always love to hear from you, our dear listeners, so send us your thoughts about the films we discuss, or send us your recommendations for films that we should take a look at. Email us on cinemaautism at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we welcome special guest Andrew Brenner, who is the lead writer on the CBeebies TV show, Pablo. He is joined by Janet, Georgia and Alex to talk about his experiences running this autism-inspired cartoon. And then the gang turned their attention to Hal Ashby's 1971 dark comedy film, Harold and Maud. Huge thanks to Andrew for taking the time to chat with us. Many thanks to you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so this morning we're discussing some episodes from the BBC series Pablo, um, and we have with us Andrew Brenner, uh, who's going to introduce uh, this week's episode, and we're going to move on to talk about the film Harold and Maud. So Andrew, can I hand over to you to say a few words about those things? Yes, thank you. Um, so first to talk about Pablo, um, I, I started work on Pablo, I don't, I can't remember how many years ago when I was invited onto this program that was being developed, a tiny bit of work had been done and they had a couple of scripts that didn't, well, they, they weren't happy with it. They were getting interest in doing a program that featured an autistic central character which is what Pablo is. Pablo's a boy who's four or five, I think five, and he's at home with his mum and he has he draws and he draws these characters who are like his inner world and these different voices within him, different parts of himself and different um, aspects of who he is. And so the episodes start in live action and go into this animated world and then come out again to live action at the end. So most of the episode is in Pablo's inner world and uh, where he is featured alongside these characters who are also parts of him. And so it's like inner dialogues, inner activities, processing in a way it's trying to represent how we process. Um, and then, so I started looking at that idea for a show and then thinking about how do I write this character? I have this long yeah, I've, I've worked writing children's animation for a long time. I've had teams of writers and supervised them as well. But I didn't have, I mean, I didn't see myself as autistic and I didn't have uh, memories that I would associate with that. Um, so I didn't know how to write him from the inside as a character, which is what I would normally do. And so I started doing research and I found so many things written by parents, so many things written by academics, and I, that was, none of that was what I was looking for, and slowly began to find autistic people writing about their own experiences. Although not, not everyone wrote about their childhood, a lot of people wrote about later experiences, and what I really wanted was really young, you know, 
experiences of what it's like when you're really young. Um, at, but gradually I found people, and two of the first people I found were Rosie King, who, um, who had worked with the BBC previously um, when she was a really young teenager and presented a thing called My Autism in Me. I can't remember what it was, what it, how, how it was called. And it, she presented, and then there were a couple of other people who were in it. But she, it was very interesting the way she talked about feelings she had for things and uh, and her imagination and so that was really interesting she was very I don't know just an exciting person to discover um, and she was still young she was still in her teens and then um, the other person I found was Donna Williams who had a website who was in Australia who had written an autobiography called Nobody Nowhere in the early 90s and it was one of the it was probably the first autistic autobiography that was like a bestseller. So a lot of people then read her work and it influenced them. And then and she was also another just creative person. And particularly with her help, we started to put together a team of creative autistic people who would be interested in contributing to the show, writing about their experiences, telling stories, and that I would work with them to produce something that was going to work for children's television and keep the voice at the right age. Because <laughs> some people, you know, wanted to write things that were quite teenagey sometimes. <laughs> anyway, that's how we worked. And I worked in very different ways with different people. Some people only wanted to contribute ideas. They didn't really want to write scripts. Some people really wanted to be script writers. <laughs> and so I just worked with them in the way I would give notes and we would, you know, discuss scripts and, and look at uh, how the story might develop um, and just give feedback. And then other people I would co-write with for different, in different ways as well. And so we would work with it on the script live, like on Zoom or something, Skype actually, it was pre-Zoom, <laughs> um, and collaborate. And so Samita Majumdar is one of the people who I did a lot of collaboration with um, I also collaborated with Stuart Valentine, um, who's very interesting um, man with the, uh, with his with websites. He's a poet as well. He was an, another person that Donna knew. Um, I did some work with Paul Isaacs, who contributed to the show. A lot of different people whose work can actually be found, as well as people who came through the production company and were, you know, just just found through the process of kind of call out. And so we then, we started writing the show in that way. And in fact, I started working with people really early, way before the show was funded, just because I thought we need time to see how this is going to work. I don't know what people, you know, what pace people will need to work at, how we'll work or whatever. Um, and when the BBC realized what we were doing, they were very supportive and put extra funding into the show because of the way we were doing it. So it was great that they, you know, they were really happy with the way we approached it. And so we, we've done a lot of, we've done two seasons of 52 episodes each. That's a, 104 stories. Plus we did a special called House Time, which was specifically during COVID to um, look at what it felt like in lockdown for kids. And uh and now we're we're working to create an older version of the show 
where Pablo's eight or nine and he's going to school and it's about what that's like. And the whole show is aged up and more comedy focused because that's what the BBC want. Um, but we've got three great autistic comedians who are starting to get involved and I'm really excited. It's just a new process. Um, so you guys watch some episodes, so it'd be interesting to see how you found them. I don't know if, I, do, you, do you want to describe them for people who haven't seen them? Um, maybe just a quick uh, title and what happens in each episode that could be useful for listeners. Yeah. So there were three episodes uh, that I was suggesting to watch together. One is called The Super Place, which is about going to the supermarket. And this is written with Sumita Majumdar. Um, and it's, yeah, it just de developed out of Pablo's mum is getting ready to go to the supermarket and he is drawing a kind of pictorial list at the table and is anticipating the overwhelm of the super place, really, which is what he calls it. That's his kind of name for it. And then in we go into the animated world through his list and he and the inner world characters of Mouse, Draft, Noah, all these different kind of animal characters are there in the super place with him and reacting to that situation um, in different ways because they are all quite different. And, uh, and it's basically Mouse who's having the most difficulty with it and who gets through by focusing on looking at the list and also other beautiful things that she finds. Um, and the second episode was uh, Journey to the Center of the Telly by Rosie King, which is about Pablo gets stopped from watching the, his favorite television program and goes into his animated world to try to go inside the telly and find out what happens. And it's sort of exploring the inside of this um, strange world where there are different programs and different kinds of content and how does that exist and how do they know what's going to happen if you turn it off? <laughs> um, and that's a story by Rosie King. And then there was another story by Sumita Majumdar. And that's um, Captain Pinecone, which grew out of exploring uh, these pinecones that she held. In fact, she had them when we were, we were discussing. And we turned it into a story about using them to tap on things and kind of create a sound map or interact with the environment or explore. And so Captain Pinecone became an explorer in the animation. I loved how bold and confident Captain Pinecone was. It was, uh, you know, this manifestation of, of using the device to explore a strange space. And so the personification of the Pinecone was this sort of bold adventurer with a gruff sort of voice and it's quite cool. <laughs> But I mean, when I first saw the actual series, I was thinking, oh, what? So there's all these sort of characters, these voices in this character's head, but it, it's not really meant to symbolize anything so literal, right? They're all aspects of uh, Pablo's personality or um, maybe even indicative of certain autistic traits. And it's a way of what showing the collision between these tensions, is that right? Um, I think it's different for different people. I mean, that's, that's really what I would say is, is, um, so for, for both Sumita and Donna Williams, they identify as 
having multiple um, multiple characters within themselves that you know that ha- that are different voices. Um, I I also think you know I can. I think that originally when the series was conceived, it was very much conceived around autistic traits. I don't really see it like that, although those autistic traits appear in these different characters. I see it as different parts of self. And sometimes it's like, to me, it, it just represents that kind of sense of inner dialogue. And, you know, I experience inner dialogue. I think most people do in some form. So it can be very extreme because people can have a dissociative identity disorder where the characters don't don't see each other but that's different and i mean even saying that i feel like oh naming it something that i don't really necessarily agree with the way it's named but i think one thing i really liked about specifically the super place i think because you have all these different characters that um you know that could be different uh, aspects of of Pablo's autism or just or different manifestations of autism, but you see this sort of negotiation of all um, all these different traits and and difficulties. So you know, there's um, Mouse wants things to be quieter and doesn't want the colors to be as loud, and all the other characters are trying to negotiate that and trying to find the best thing. And I think that resonated with me because it's not a straightforward, you know. Um, I don't like this sound. I'm going to leave. It's like there's all sorts of other things that come into play that you have to, and you have to find what is the most comfortable. And I really like how all the characters are sort of uh, are, are do, trying to find what's best for Mouse, but also for themselves, especially, um, and the comfort they find in like the list and the nice quiet list. Um, I think it really like speaks to that experience of trying to sort of compromise with yourself and in, in, in those sorts of situations of, of overwhelm. Because um, I never really, you never really think about it as, as like a dialogue. It's just like a fight or flight response. I'm talking about this in terms of my own experience of like sensory overload. Um, so I can definitely see like, you know, a kid watching this and thinking, you know, uh, me getting overwhelmed in these situations is fine. You know, there's all sorts of processes uh, and conversations going on. Um, and and that's normal, uh, which I think is really wonderful because I didn't really come across Pablo. Um, so, yeah, I just think, you know, it's a wonderful way to um, sort of normalise these these sort of sensory and, and, and uh, cognitive difficulties for children. And um, it makes it into something that, I don't know, you can, it, it's, it's, it's easy to see yourself. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not even a, a child, and I did. You know, I was watching it and thinking, "Gosh, you know that I I do relate to a lot of these things." But again, it's different for everyone. I think people can take different things from it. Just on the back of what George is saying there about that, that particularly that episode. I mean, I, I I love the poetry of all of them, but that that seemed to particularly uh, pick up on a synesthesia of the way in which one sense becomes another, you know, something that's a sound becomes something visual and there's something about the sparkly nails in that that was that was to do with a different sense. And it, it, it I mean, for me, as a sort of neurotypical person, it, it, it so-called, it, it connected up all sorts of sensory relationships to the world where to, to the way that we separate them, we're taught to separate senses just seemed quite 
flat-footed compared to this description of being in the supermarket, which was just much more evocative and 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 sort of real in terms of what what that's like for for our bodies when we go in. You know, there's sounds, colours. Um, you know, even that the way that that might interpret, that it might become become translated into something like taste or smell, um, it just seemed very rich to me. I, it really tickled me the idea that these products were so needy and attention seeking. <laughs> it's so true, you know, they're grasping after our eyes and our and our hands when we walk through these places. Yeah, it made me laugh. Yeah, I love that too. I really feel that like objects are pulling you to kind of, you know, come and come and look at me. And I think as a kid, that thing of like, oh, that's in my house. Like that's supposed to be in my house. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I also think like little kids are much closer to all these experiences anyway, because they're much more connected to the sensory. Mm. And, and like working on Pablo really made me think about how we lose contact with that and that's partly i think socialized out of everybody mm. i mean i loved um that mm. film um Melbeg's, uh in my language and i just feel like that language everybody starts with that language and then we lose it and we're taught to lose it and we're taught not to do that and that's like to me thinking about that was one of the things the processes on pablo really brought to me <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think the the world of things is is so much more real for children, or and and that's what's trained out of us. And I can see that I have a six year old, who 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 knows exactly where objects are in the house in the way that the adults don't. You know, um, <clears throat> it's quite amazing. Like even really small things like beads or you know blocks or multiple things, and she'll know where they are. Um, and it, it, it's as though objects become have to become less important to us as humans <clears throat> become more central uh, in the way that we're encouraged to, to relate to the world. Yeah, and I also think there's a lot of joy that gets lost by losing that connection. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one of the things I felt. And I really wanted to make sure that we were talking about the joys <laughs> of all of this and representing that. Yeah, the the world of it is very it's very tactile. That's one of the things I I really noticed because even though the, you know it's a the the drawing and the animation style is very accessible to children, it's still you know it does jump out to you, but not in in the way that the stuff on the supermarket aisles does in a very overwhelming way. Like it's very it's very easy to look at. Um, but you know with the with the Captain Pinecone episode, it really struck me how um, th this sort of texture was something that was uh it, it became like a rhythm and it became something that was um you know it had this sort of sensory joy attached to it no not everything is is just completely overwhelming you can find a sort of rhythm and uh and a pleasure in in you know how tactile things are um which is something i i do a lot of i think about a lot um, how to translate these these sort of complex sensory experiences into something that's quite that that's something enjoyable or something interesting. Um, um, and yeah, like Alex said, I really enjoyed how I really enjoyed that character and how he was the the sort of one leading all of that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. <laughs> so um, 
as you know, Andrew, uh, Savita and I work together a lot, and so we've been chatting a little bit about Pablo behind the scenes. Um, and she mentioned that there was some sort of uh, process in the animation pipeline that's uh, also collaborative and involving lots of, uh, well, some uh, autistic animators. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so as Pablo developed, I think things and with Paper Owl, the company who makes it, it's a production company in Northern Ireland. Um, I think they've introduced other things into their pipeline generally. Um, so on Pablo, it started from finding um, autistic writers, but very quickly became finding autistic voice actors and then, you know, looking at the team and including autistic people in every aspect that they could. But I think more recently, Sumita's also been involved in a kind of training program that they've introduced to work specifically with uh, bringing autistic people into the industry and and giving support. I mean, a lot of it is about access needs and just understanding if somebody need, has access needs that they can share them. And one of the things Sumita said uh, early on in the production was with the producer in Ireland, it was like she was asked by Grania McGuinness, who produces the show, is there anything you need? And she just said, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. <laughs> you know, it was like, that's such a basic kind of thing, but to be treated like you might need something, if you do, you can say, <laughs> you know, and, and so there were a lot of different ways that that was responded to. And I feel like that's, that's all part of what the process of working on the show and the people who were involved open up, you know, opens up loads of things to work like that, I think. In a really positive way, <laughs> and I hope that there's more and more of it. I'm thinking, would this be a good time to move on to talking about the film that we have uh, watched for this week and that you suggested, Andrew, which is Harold and Mulder film from uh, 1971. Can I invite you to say a few words yeah. by way of introduction? Thank you. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I fell in love with this film really young. <laughs> I was trying to work out how old I would have been when I saw it. And so it came out when I was 10 years old and I went to the cinema with my family to see it. And I don't know if it was like we saw it immediately when it came out or we saw it the next year, but I was around 10 or 11 and uh, it just made a huge impression on me. And watching it again recently, I realized like it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster for me as a film. <laughs> I find it scary as well as exciting and funny. And then I find it very moving. So it's it's uh, just for people who haven't seen it, it's um, the story of Harold who's, I'm, I think late teens or 20, something like that. Maybe late teens is, is more what he is. And he's, I mean, he's old enough to drive um, because he drives a hearse. <laughs> um, but he's, it starts really with him repeatedly staging mock suicides uh, in front of his mother and it opens it opens with one of those mock suicides with him hanging himself with before you have any sense of who he is as a character who his mother is or anything that's his introduction is him hanging himself it's uh he then his mother and psychiatrist and his uncle who's in the military they're all trying to kind of get him to conform to be more normal but he's more interested in 
in going to funerals. He's clearly suffering. <laughs> That's my feeling. He's distressed. And then he meets this woman, Maud, who also is going to funerals and who is just coming up to her 80th birthday. And they develop a friendship which is completely different to any of the relationships that he has in his life with anyone else. And it's a kind of black comedy rom-com with the biggest age gap in cinema history, I think. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And, and also the other thing I think is um, it's also got these songs by Cat Stevens all the way through. And that's a really important, it's almost like it's a musical. And I, and I watching it again, I kind of almost feel like this is the inner soundtrack of Harold as he's going through the film, which he shares with Maud. Um, I don't know if that's, anyway, that's, that's just a quick overview. And yeah, I've wa I watched it, I watched it twice again. I watched it when I have children who are now grown up, but I watched it when they were teenagers with them to see how would they relate to it. And it was really positive. So I don't know. I mean, my feeling is maybe it keeps speaking to people. It does to me anyway. <laughs> don't know how you guys found it. Well, it's quite a start to the film, isn't it? Um, we're not let in on the fact that these suicide uh, simulations are faked. And so I thought, oh my goodness, this is... Uh, okay, it's gonna, we're going to have a non-linear narrative where this is where the film ends. Uh, but no, I mean, uh, he's playing with all of us, basically, as spectators, including his mother. Um, well, really primarily for her. Um, but I, I guess, uh, yeah, Andrew, I was... You know the the the, the podcast theme, uh, autism through cinema. Um, in what way does it uh, sort of resonate with your understanding of autism that's de developed over the last couple of years whilst working on uh, Pablo? Does it relate in any way to that in terms of aesthetics or themes or even? I mean, it's it's always sort of a low risk activity. Well, sorry, it's always a high-risk activity diagnosing fictional characters. There's no way to do that, so we'll um, we'll, be, we'll we'll tread carefully. But you know, you selected it for this, so uh, and why was that? I think the thing that I that I feel still, and I think that that touched me right when I first saw it, is this thing of a character who clearly feels like he doesn't fit in, and that the world around him like the social world around him, the culture that he's living in is, is actually damaging and distressing. And that, so I originally, like I saw this film, so it's, it was 1971. I was living in Boston, Massachusetts. I was very aware of the sort of 60s subcultures, the civil rights movements. My parents were, you know, in, interested and engaged in all of that and then the alternative things of the of the hippies and all of this stuff and the idea of an alternative culture and that resonated with me and I've always seen the film until recently through that lens but actually coming to the conference autism through cinema and listening to some of the presentations made me wonder about this feeling of not fitting in being looked at through a different lens of you know, why doesn't someone feel like they fit in? Why do you feel like an outsider? What does that mean? Um, and so I think that resonated with me in my sense of my own relationship to the dominant culture. 
and society. And then, but then to look at that through, is that because there are different connections that are being made through, you know, different neurotype or whatever? <laughs> why is, is there another way to look at why, or another aspect even of what's going on with Harold and how do these things, that, that my big question in bringing it is also how do these things overlap, you know? criticisms of culture and socialization, how does that overlap with um, different ways of perceiving the world, mm. you know, in a very fundamental way, a kind of organic way? That That's sort of the question that I was left with watching it again in this context. And I, and it was just like people were bringing films that I resonated with into the discussion through the podcast and things. And I was like, I resonate with this film. Let's look at that and think about it. And, you know, it's just... It's a way of kind of wondering about what films are saying, really. Mm. Yeah, I think that that description of of, of outsiderliness is really interesting in this film because it's the 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 outsider, both of the outsider characters, Harold and Maud, are the most playful, and I think we don't get that to begin with. As, um, there is that foil that Alex was mentioning that we 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 don't we don't know that that this is a mock suicide. We also don't see Harold to begin with. The way that he's filmed is from first of all from the waist down. We get his shoes, we get his trousers. Then it, I think it's up to the neck, and then um, the suicide attempt. And then we, we we gradually. I think it's several minutes into the film before we see his face. And also that that introduction to him physically suggests that he might also be quite a conformist. Like his clothes are pretty, pretty unusual for a nineteen-year-old. Right, those kind of brogues um, and brown brown suit trousers, um, and that's not who he is at all. So it sort of sets up something as a bit of a wrong footing, and then then uh, and then reverses it. But it, it what is really interesting about it is the way that his it all of that rigidity that it, in you know in the kind of stereotyping of autism is actually placed onto the the family in this film you know it's the mother who's incredibly rigid it's the mother who's rigid about what he should wear what he should do who she he should be dating what car he should drive um all of these ideas about who he should be we get very clearly as a projection from from her onto her son and his his response is you know very kind of slowly to find his own way through this and meeting Maud is, is the catalyst for that, the, the sense of, of uh, that it's okay to be outside of that. Um, but the, the meeting of Maud at, at the funeral seemed also to bring in something that is quite, to, to keep in play the sinister, the, the traumatic, the, the darkness of, of the characters, as well as the playful. And it's the putting of those things together that I thought was really interesting in both Maud and and in Harold. And of course we get we get the information about Maud and her background trauma quite late into the film. Um, yeah, I don't know if other people want to want to mention that. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna pick up on I think what resonated for me quite significantly about the film was that it seems to be two people who deal with the traumas of life in, in very different ways or very similar ways as it might turn out. Um, you know, you have Harold who comes from a very um, sort of oppressive household with, with lots of sort of 
Uh, it's, it's, I think he comes from like a socialite background with a, a lot of invisible rules and and um, expectations, and and he doesn't, you know, conform to those things, and and is is dealing with that difficulty of feeling quite lonely, um, and not having anyone really close that he can relate to or identify with. And then, as Janet said, uh, a lot later in the film, uh, it's, it's sort of revealed that Maud um, was a, um, a victim of, of, uh, of concentration camps, uh, I think, in the Holocaust. We see uh, um, a sort of uh, marks on her arm, uh, like a tattoo of numbers on her arm. It's a very, very brief sequence, but in that we, we sort of, we understand more where this sort of desire to, to live outside of the confines of, of, of societal structures and boundaries, outside of the law as well. She doesn't really seem to have any regard for the law, which I think is brilliant. Um, she just doesn't really, you know, she'll just steal cars and has so much joy in it. Um, but I think, yeah, it sort of revealed that that comes from, you know, a need to um, find find joys in life that are otherwise sort of hidden or, or, or things that aren't expected. And... Um, you know, you see these people deal with these things in very different ways. And I think um, one of the things, that, one of the questions that I had from the start was, you know, why why is it death? Why is it suicides that, um, that Harold has such a fixation on? Um, because, you know, it's not, it's not a desire to die, I don't think, on his end, because he never really actually you know, tries to die. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's that. It's, it's more of a you know, obsession. And then I, I thought, is it like a nihilist thing? Is it like a fixation on death being, you know, uh, the, you know, one thing that he can rely on to be real, um, you know, it, as a way to cope with everything. Um, but I think more than anything, it, it's just like an escapism. It's like, you know, if I can, you know, die temporarily and I can see the reactions of people around me, I think he, yeah, at one point he describes the first time he fakes a suicide or he fakes his own death and he describes the reaction of his mother just being absolutely, um, you know, broken by it. And he describes that. I can't remember the exact quote, but he says, you know, it was, he felt amazing in that moment, um, you know, because, you know, you see, you know, someone um, mourning you even though you're still alive and... and and becoming addicted to that feeling, um, which I think is really interesting because I suppose a, a way of dealing with all these issues is to you know, fixate on on your life after, after you've died and, and, and the, what happens to the people around you. Um, I think going back to, the, going back again to the, you know, both of them, I said from an autistic point of view, it is that sense of escapism and the need to, to escape from these these structures um, that are so oppressive that sort of resonates, um, you know, without diagnosing characters specifically because I don't think that's applicable to this film. I think more than anything, it's the it's that idea of the need to escape and whether we choose life or death to escape, um, you know, or both, as it would turn out in the case of Maud, um, which I think is really interesting. I think a big theme um, in this film is uh, taboos and uh, resisting taboos. You know, we talked about death and uh, I guess that that's sort of traditionally the biggest taboo in uh, our culture, that something that must be assumed to be awful. But Maud seems to 
find it uh, not too big a issue to take her own life as for real at the end because she's 80 and she feels like she's had a good life and presumably isn't looking forward to the next few years. And we also have uh, Harold who, you know, is totally fixated on it. I mean, I, I think Georgia, we're talking about the first time his he was... People thought he was dead. I think that was an accident rather than an intended situation where there was an explosion in the chemistry lab at school. But yeah, it's quite interesting to f- try and understand how this, uh, how that moment could inspire a new fascination. But back to the taboos, it's on every layer, you know, sexual taboos, relationship taboos. Um, the sort of psychologist gets very sort of excited by the, by the idea of trying to understand... Uh, why Harold doesn't want to sleep with his mother, but in fact wants to sleep with a grandfa- grandmother figure, which, uh, you know, so all the way through we're sort of challenging norms and uh, uh, our sort of expectations of what should be considered right and wrong, including the law, you know, the idea that owning a property is a form of theft uh, from Maud's perspective. I think, um, I think there's one thing that I... I slightly interpret differently to what you said, Georgia, which is the moment when he describes his mother's reaction to to his death. It's reported to her by these policemen at the front door. And I think the way he describes it is, is along the lines of she was being very theatrical and that he didn't really connect that she was feeling for him. So she basically put her hand over her forehead and swooned into the arms of the policeman. That's what she, he says. And then he begins to cry. So there's something I feel like I interpret him from the beginning. As soon as you start to see his face as a traumatized character who's dealing, like you said, you know, with, with this trauma, but also that he's looking for this connection and he's just not, just not feeling that. And it made me think about this question of empathy and where lack of empathy can be and, you know, how that, how that is about. And, and another thing that that touches on, which I think probably is something we need to look at, is this is a time when the dominant theory was the refrigerator mother theory. And so this mother is possibly an archetypal refrigerator mother. At the same time in this film, her lack of reaction and cold kind of conformism is just extended to his uncle and the and the um, psychiatrist and the priest. And there's all these people who are not being empathetic. And even the policeman, when he's interacting with them, like he's, I mean, it's very hard because Maud is so playful, but... <laughs> And mischievous, but but he's not really listening to her and taking in anything of what she f- might feel like. He's just, oh, you've broken these rules. Mm. That's interesting. Do you do you think he's not? I think Harold isn't listening to Maud. Do you think he's learning from her? Uh, how do you read that relationship? No, sorry, I meant the policeman wasn't listening to Maud. Oh, so I'm saying sorry. like there's lack of empathy in a lot of different characters. Yes. That's what I was saying is the lack of empathy is not just the mother. It's not just a refrigerator mother that's being represented. Yeah. They're all quite stereotyped, aren't they? Other than Maud and Harold. The, the, you get a kind of slightly 
Monty Python-esque, very British sense of like the policeman, an uncle who's in the military, uh, a cold aristocratic mother who just wants to kind of, you know, match her, have a perfect love match for her son, um, who are all quite brittle. And then next to that, there's Harold's kind of watery-eyed, very pale, moon-like face, um, who who seems very, very, very uh, uh, kind of tangible compared to these other characters, and also very fragile and and very close to the surface with what with what he feels, which you know, unbelievably, no one else is able to see, other than Maud. Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder what you thought about um, the 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 way with 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 Harold, the kind of the casting of him of of that that particular actor. He seemed to have quite an incredible face to me, quite an unusual face. Very, um, and the, the way we get an idea of of, of masculinity. This seems this film also seemed to be way way ahead of its time in terms of the stats around young men and suicide. Um, it, it made me think about that a lot. That there's there's something there's a presentation of here of masculinity in the midst of the kind of countercultural moment where, you know, men young men are meant to be taking drugs and having lots of sex and whooping up. Here we have a young man who isn't interested in that in a very conventional way. So yeah, I wonder, can we explore him a little bit more? I mean, uh, if we're on the topic of masculinity, it, it's so clearly embodied by the uncle. Um, this sort of absurd military figure who, um, you know, has a sort of pulley system on his blazer to make sure his amputated arm (laughs) sleeve can rise up to salute. Um, And it doesn't take much energy for Harold to whip him up into a somewhat over-vigorous encouragement for starting a new war uh, in Europe. Um, It's, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the connection between this masculine uh, identity and violence is very easily made, um, and uh, yeah. But I mean, Har- yeah, Harold is a—he's a sort of like a, a mellow uh, Noel Fielding in my mind. You know, this sort of, um, but but maybe not Noel Fielding in uh, Mighty Boosh. Noel, Noel Fielding, the actual, the face of the moon. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know much about Bud Court as an actor. I, I, I heard at one point that he had done this film and then didn't do anything for a really, really long time. Mm. And then um, and then later in his life, he did come back and, and, and play some other roles. Yeah, he is an extraordinary choice because he just seems such, a, such an unusual presence on screen. You know, and his often his stillness is really striking. Mm. <clears throat> you know, he's sitting there completely still while the psychiatrist is saying things to him. And you're like, what? How are you going to respond? Or are you going to respond? I found that all really interesting. There's a kind of tension in that. That's it's just like he has, it feels like he has no sense of what response would be appropriate sometimes. I mean, or, or it makes sense, you know, so I also found it really interesting that he's almost mirroring the psychiatrist, you know, like he's sitting like him and and yet he's completely, I don't know, he looks like completely baffled by what this man is trying to do, except that he feels intruded upon. That's the main thing I get. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder if we can um, talk a little bit about the feel of the film as well, the, the, sort of the colour palette that it has, the, the sensory feel. It had, um, I mean, for me, it was quite nostalgic. As someone in their 50s, it, you know, I lived through 70s as a, as, as a young person, as a child, and and all of that stuff about cars was in there and you know cars were such a big thing then and unproblematically so and and you know Maud quite a lot of the relationship of Maud and Harold is around this kind of love of speed and, and racing around um but there's also like a lot of brown it seemed very brown and orange film um and and the, and the way that the camera would film people, it, it seemed to kind of fragment bodies sometimes. And then also to move into tableau that we were sort of pushed back as spectators. And we'd see, as you were just describing that that scene then between the Harold and the psychiatrist, we see them both, I think, in, in matching chairs and they're wearing matching suits and ties and shirts. Uh, but we're, we're quite a long way back. And it, it was some of that sort of tableau-esque filming sort of framing that reminded me a bit of Wes Anderson and the way that you can sort of experience the film as quite uni a unified world in its own term in terms of its its colours, its its themes. We but we are quite we're we're quite a uh, we're quite in the position of observers rather than being invited to be in it. And it reminded me of that discussion of of the Wes Craven film, where there was a discussion of of of, of trauma and of of childhood um, experiences that might have made children more guarded, more kind of sit back, that more kind of observing place in the world. And I wondered if there was something of that in the film that, that the film invites the viewers not to be in the world with them, but but to to take this role that's a little more like Harold and 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 sort of sit back and and see it as something that's a bit separate and outside of themselves. I think for me, one of the things that was really exciting, sorry, is um, is some of those shots that pull back to to a huge vista, and there's just suddenly this sense of like a change of scale coming in, and it's like we're always. We're always in this place and then suddenly you feel this change of scale and that's actually really interesting I like i love the the conversation around the daisies you know and he's saying i want to be like this flower because it's like all the others and then and maud says no every one of them's different you know this one's bent this way and the other, and all these little details and then you come out to this scene where there's this beautiful shot of like just so many more daisies <laughs> than you expect to be there and it's just like vast and that's kind of echoed in the in the graveyard near the end these white graves it's just yeah all of that I found really and and there's other places where it does mm. that I think um the the whole film this might sound a bit silly but the whole film it reminded me a lot of the graduate not just because of the age gap relationship and also the the sort of ongoing soundtrack you know that was Simon and Garfunkel then we have Cat Stevens but what struck me was how you know The Graduate is just is very punishing I think as a film it's very punishing towards its protagonist it's it's not you know an easy thing to watch I think by the end but I think the thing about Harold and Maud that I really appreciate is it deals with taboos in a way that is less punishing 
we've talked about the taboos before, but if I talk about the ending just for a minute, you know, there's that moment where we think Harold has reacted to the death of Maud by, you know, finally actually killing himself. And then um, we get, again, one of these sweeping wide wides where we go back to the top of the cliff after he's driven the car off. But what we, it looks to be him driving the car off and he's he's sort of stood there um, in, in sort of, he's wearing light clothing for the first time in the film. And, you know, we get this moment of, you know, relief <laughs> that he hasn't actually killed himself and he actually seems to be, you know, sort of taking a, note from from Maud and in, in, in you know embracing the the little details of life and and I and I really like the fact that you know all of these these taboos and things that are explored in the film he's never he's never punished for any of that you know in the end he gets to enjoy you know he's young he's what 19 he has a lot of his life left to live um I think that's a you know one of the main differences between him and Maud is Maud knows seems to know her right time to die and wants to have the control over when she dies as sort of a response to what's happened to her in the past is being I'm the one who chooses when I live and when I die and I think that's a really um it's a comforting thought I think in a way of having that amount of control over your life and I think um Harold realizes that you know it's not his time for that yet um and I think you know, uh, you know, for people that go through that amount of trauma and things like that, it's a comforting thought to know, you know, that there are, there are more things uh, that you can do. But I, yeah, I, I just really appreciated that the film didn't end on sort of a, a tragic note, uh, the tragic note that it could have. And and I, yeah, I, I felt I was worried for a minute. <laughs> I think as everyone does when they watch the film, thinking, oh gosh, oh why would he do that? But no, I really liked the ending. I was reading the ending initially as like, oh my, yeah, same position. Obviously, they're trying to fool us again. But um, I see, I didn't. I think there was something quite special about the fact that it was his car that got destroyed. Uh, I think it was a symbol of this tension between my family can offer me so many resources, but also the it's like torture being around them and being. Um, you know, su submitted to all of their uh, grotesque whims and desires for me, um, you know. And so the destruction of the car, may, and then his sort of ambling off like a flaneur down the road with his banjo, um, I think symbolised a, a, a new period of, in his life that we don't get to see, we just assume is really lovely <laughs> off into the distance. Um, but yeah, I mean, just going back to, I mean, we obviously the mother is overbearing, um, but it's, it, it, and she's, you know, as Janet said, a, a sort of a stereotype and, and even perhaps tapping into lots of psychoanalytic concern about motherhood uh, that was preoccupying uh, North American psychology at the time. Um, but just some of the details of the, of the situation are quite, a worthy of sort of a focus you know she she signs him up to it's quite forward-thinking internet dating phenomena but mail ordered um and he's unwilling and passive as she subjects him to this and starts filling in the form based on uh you know what she believes his his desires and and uh, preferences are and it's not long until she's sort of 
basically filling in her own political opinions and and uh, just the the sort of uh, grotesque lack of self-awareness seems to be her major crime. She doesn't understand uh, that her will is not universal. Hmm. Yeah, Andrew, you touched upon earlier um, the the sort of refrigerator mother thing, which obviously is a is a theory. I think that's it's been very much been debunked. Um, but at the same time, you know, at this time, it, it's, you know, the concern of um, uh, the mother figure being, you know, a, a sort of catalyst for something like autism is something that was quite dominant. But I think in general that what Alex said about the mother's preoccupation with her own concerns over that of her son is something that, um, you know, that's one. I think the the cause of a lot of these things for Harold, um, you know, she like she's the one that sets up these these computer dates. She's ends up filling in this test. The test actually it, it reminded me a lot of the the sort of AQ tests, you know, with the sort of really ridiculous sort of question, ridiculous personal questions that doesn't really have any relevance to yourself. You know, it goes into opinions and things like that, but. You know, I thought that I thought that sequence was really funny. Um, you know, we, he he's about to, you know, he points the gun at her before pointing it at himself. And, I mean, it's funny, but it's quite harrowing at the same time. I think, you know, seeing the mother as as this source of, you know, it's quite she's quite a funny character, but she, the source of um, his loneliness essentially. He feels completely lonely um, and completely you know, devoid of any, any figure of comfort. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I love that scene. <laughs> I find that scene so interesting. And actually, when he, when he mock shoots himself and the chair falls back and he's lying on the floor, she, there's, the, there's some question about, do you have ups and downs with no obvious, you know, reason? And she says, yes, Harold, that's you, definitely. And it's like, she's not, She's not taking in his ups and downs. She's just like, well, that's a confusing thing that's going on with you. It's I, I have no way of understanding it. And so, it, yeah, I find that the end of that scene is really, you're left with this thing of like, you're an enigma to me, but that's, and I'll just laugh it off and get you a, get you a partner. <laughs> um, but I also, sorry, I just, one thing that I, that I didn't say earlier, I just wanted to say is um, there's a kind of sense that whatever he's feeling in relation to his mother, there's a, also a sense that he's internalized something very negative towards himself and that playing out mock suicides is like a way of playing that out, that it's like a kind of self-loathing, even if he's a part of himself is not self-loathing, but a big part of himself is. And it's like Maud who's kind of saying you know, look at yourself differently, just enjoy some things, you know, it's okay. And you don't, it's kind of like, you don't have to take this as your point of reference, take something else, look at yourself as a different point of reference, who you are. And just one other thing that resonates with that is when I, so I mentioned this film to one of my friends and he just immediately sang, if you want to be me, be me, if you want to be you, be you. <laughs> And I was like, oh, it's great. Like, that was his summary of the film almost. <laughs> and it was like, that bit from that song is seems really important as well. That mm. song in particular. Mm. 
Um, well, I really despise Cat Stevens, so I found that quite a challenge. <laughs> Um, but I wanted to go to one particular scene that confused me in the film and I wasn't sure what to make of it. Um, the last date where he, it's an actress that he's uh, been set up with and he, like in all the other dates, he sort of sets up this mock suicide. He sort of demonstrates uh, a Japanese uh, knife uh, suicide. Um, I'm not sure what the right terminology is. And um, she absolutely loves it and just is so enthralled by the theatricality of the whole experience and then takes part and starts uh, playing out the uh, role of Juliet in uh, the Shakespeare play um, and I thought I was expecting like oh has he met his match here like that's and I, I wasn't then expecting and then when <laughs> the, the, the film really changes gears and then we start the sexual relationship uh, with a uh, what mm, 60 year age gap um so i i just wanted your thoughts from the group about that individual date and that woman uh, uh was it just an, an extension of the sort of absurdity critique of uh the squares let's say the, the sort of normies i think my reading of that scene was was yes that it was another it, it was another kind of theatrical um performance of something that they're meant to be doing and 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 you get the kind of the earth script for it with Shakespeare and it and it plays out in another way that that Harold will take it somewhere that is kind of you know deathly um and and, and nothing in that in that house in that world can be anything but but deathly and lead to that conclusion was how I felt about it and I mean I think it's worth worth saying about more that her her world is also I think it's a it, it's much more of a um, an impermanent one, doesn't she? Live in a railway carriage? Is it an old railway carriage or something? That that her home is comprised of, and it's just packed full of trinkets and beautiful objects and things that she's made and sensuous things. And we we see Harold stroking the sculpt the wooden sculpture that she's made. Um, it's a world that it is immediately full of, of stuff that he wants to engage with. And it's very much the opposite of the mise-en-scene of the big, empty, very ordered, but minimal house that he's grown up in. And so there's a there's a kind of different, a, a different world where the, you know, the, the, the family, his family is about performance and Maud is about a, a kind of liberation from that. And I think there's also something about, about Maud where, where when we know that she's come from the from through the Holocaust and being part of that, that there's something about the film's registration of trauma as something that that can be freeing, not not that it is in a utopian way, but that it it can be that the worst has already happened for Maud, and it's and it, and maybe that allows Harold to reframe his childhood like that, like like that was rubbish, you know, that world that world wasn't great, that that childhood wasn't perfect for me, but but I you know I can move on from that and engage in the world in a different way. I wanted to just move us a little bit more directly into the place of sex. And as Alex just mentioned, the 60-year age gap. It, I don't know if you know the film Happen by Carlos Regadas, which was, I think it was about 20 years ago now. I remember seeing that at the cinema. And it's a very similar film, actually, but but set in South America. And you, actually, you get to see the sex between a younger man and an 80-something-year-old 
woman. Um, it's you know it's it's shock, shocking. It's it's breaking a lot of taboos in in cinema as well as kind of socially and social contracts. Um, and it's and I think from the little bit I read about the film around the film, there's there was some um, discussion of this and an operation of a taboo around the edit scene that there was some apparently some scenes of kissing that were cut out of the film that people thought they were disgusting that there was this kind of discourse around it um and yet what we do have i think is the way in which maud is filmed is 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 very loving you know the way that her her face is captured seeing and seeing a face with that many lines now is just it wouldn't happen right it's just that an actress like that probably wouldn't wouldn't be cast it might be someone who's a bit younger a bit less lined um but i thought that it it was it negotiated that quite well but but it also kept the physicality as something of a, of a distance that there was a bit of a kind of a, a fear of like oh god you know what, what are people going to think of this in a way i feel the most erotic moment as played out is harold interacting with the sculpture that mm. she's made you know it's the caressing of that sculpture and that whole engagement and it's um you know he puts his head into the <laughs> into the um opening there and it's like that that scene is played i mean the sensory like maud has like a connection to all of her senses that she tries to celebrate through her art and she's made this you know smell generating thing, <laughs> yes. sort of you know crazy invention that generates smell but it's sound it's everything and it's like the sensory connection is really important mm. and yeah i mean it is coy about their sex but then there's also that priest saying how disgusting it is to imagine it so he's kind of inviting the audience to imagine it as really disgusting but the, there was the sort of subtext to that description yeah you know the uh, priest was sort of, sort of lingering over the sort of sweaty wet language of how he described it it was <laughs> and then only at the very end he's like I, yeah, and it, and it's he reminds himself, oh yeah, I'm not meant to like this, and no one else is either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this is the kind of film that will enjoy the torturing of priests. Uh, I think uh, socially uh, <laughs> examining their um, rigidity and uh, rules and boundaries and chasteness. But I also agree with what Georgia was saying earlier in in relation to a film like. Yeah, the Mrs. Robinson stuff that the graduate it is it isn't a punishing film in this respect. And I think that's really interesting about it. That it it's very much a kind of a a pro film in terms of the the way that these characters connect and he gains his life force from this older woman. Uh, just one thing though, I think the ending is a little uh easygoing, like uh for the audience. Maud hands the baton over. Okay, you can have my life essence now. I'm going to mm -hmm. kill myself, even though I'm quite active and having a great time every day. Uh, I'm just going to get myself out of the way so you can grow up and have a nice life. Yeah. Um, it seems a little convenient. They could have had a, uh, a very nice five years together. Yeah, but I saw it as, as I mean, as her having control over her own death and there's comfort in that. You know, as someone who's been persecuted from quite a young age, you know, the idea that I decide when I die and I I decide, uh, you know, the the time span of my life and having that control, I feel like it's really comforting. 
And again, I think Harold makes that decision that it's not his time, even though he's going through this this trauma of, of Maud's death. You know, he, he realises, you know, I have a another life ahead of me. I'm going into a different phase and stage of my life. But for her, you know... Having having control over that is 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 actually a really positive thing, you know. Obviously, death isn't a positive thing in general, but I think, you know, it is nice to know as as someone who would have, um, otherwise have been uh, killed. It's it's nice to have that that control. I think I think that's what I got from that. Yeah, it's amazing to to have this character who's like the oldest character in the film. This older woman who's, you know, she's she's nearing 80, and she is the life force of the film. I mean, Ruth Gordon is incredible in that mm. role, and her face is amazing to watch, and her body language mm. is amazing to watch. And, you know, the, the visceral engagement with driving <laughs> at the extremes <laughs> of what a car can do, and the pleasure she takes in, you know, making mischievous comments to people. I love that. I, I the other thing that was strange for me watching it is because, you know, I, I sort of introduced the film as a suggestion for this podcast and I was thinking about Harold and how Harold's seen. But watching the film now, having known Donna Williams, Donna Williams is the only person who resonates, her way of being really resonates with the character of Maud in this film. And she, so there's a scene where Maud says, you know, he, Harold says, oh, I feel like doing a somersault. And Maud says, go ahead, do a somersault, you know, go and do it. And so he does this somersault. And one of Donna's things with people was to say, skip, just skip, you know, wherever you are as a way of saying, I don't need, you know, people will look at you, but you're giving them a gift because they'll think, oh, how, you know, how weird, but you're free, you're able to do it. So that kind of sense of freedom was something that she believed in. And also she was nearing the end of her life because she had cancer. And she also took a lot of comfort from the idea that she would be able to control that because she had a, she had a sleep apnea kind of thing where she would stop breathing when she was asleep. And she was like, you know, when I'm ready, I'll just, I'll just stop using this and then I'll die and it'll be fine. And I'll just pass in my sleep and that'll be it. That's not what actually happened, but that sense of controlling. So this is not anything on, you know, diagnosing Maud or anything, but it was just the resonances between Don Williams' way of being and Maud's way of being was very strong for me as a personal thing. And, you know, that is a, yeah, just another way of looking at that feeling of the value of not being conventional, the, the benefits of not being conventional, this struggle against the restrictions that are put on all of us in our way of being. Yeah, I think what you're both talking about there, that, that was very moving listening to you talk about Donna Williams, Andrew. Um, what you, you and Georgia are both talking about around control at the end of life, I think, is is very significant because it's about it's about not having fear, it seems, in that in in the face of death and that again is a taboo you know we're not allowed to talk about death we're not about allowed to confront it in a way in which the character of Maud does um and and clearly donna williams did too um i think we're coming to the end of our window of opportunity to talk this morning um 
we try and keep these around an hour, but inevitably go over. Can I just ask people for last thoughts about Harold and Maud or related topics? I think one, just, just picking up on what you said, Janet, one, one thing about this film that I find really interesting as, a, as what it leaves me think wondering about is how being aware of the reality of death is actually life affirming. <laughs> and that, you know, you talk about that taboo about talking about or thinking about it, but in fact, it's, it's present in this film from the opening and it could be for Harold, it's negative, and then it becomes something positive if you look at the way that Maud sees it. It's just a reality that you, and if you stay in front of it, you then want to live as fully as possible. And I just found that really interesting. And I feel for me, the film really is about this thing of what are we, what are we gaining and what are we losing from trying to conform to a convention? What do these social things do for us and what do they do to us? That's, mm. yeah. And also the um, the sort of effects that these constraints and and conformisms have can have on us, you know, they from something, you know, within family to something that is more of a systemic restraint. Like all of it, from from the micro to the macro, has you know such an effect on us, and that we crave, uh, you know, a way to deal with that. I think for, for, through like an autist autism lens. I can definitely see that as something that resonates with a lot of people is, you know, how do we, how do we escape these restraints? And if we can't escape them, how do we, how do we deal with them? Um, and I think this film explores it in a n number of different ways, but it, I, I just love how joyful it is about it. Even with subject matter like death and things that are quite dark and the darkness within these characters, I think the way it ultimately deals with it is really compassionate. Um, and if you, you know, see yourselves in the characters, you know, you do get a sense of of, uh, of release and catharsis after it, which I really, I really appreciated about the film. Again, I, I hadn't seen it before. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really have a any interest in watching it before this was, this was brought to uh, the podcast. But I'm, you know, I'm really glad we talked about it because I, it really, it really struck me. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it resonated with me personally uh, in a lot of ways, especially in, around these issues of, of control and freedom and liberation from all sorts of um, constraints and things like that. So, yeah, thank you, Andrew, for <laughs> suggesting it. Yeah. I just want to finish on saying um, I have a different relationship to Cat uh, Stevens from the one that you have, Alex, because my... <laughs> My mum used to, my mum loved Cat Stevens. My mum's still alive now in her 90s and she's a bit more Maud than she is the other person, luckily for me, the other mother figure. And my mum used to play Cat Stevens uh, singing Morning is Broken first thing in the morning. At the weekend, we get this blasted out, a little 45 vinyl that she'd put on. Um, so this was quite joyful for me, listening listening to Cat Stevens and, and remembering the seventies um, with with Cat Stevens and and the, that amazing color palette and so on. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that for the suggestion of this film. Um, really interesting film. I also it also made me wonder about being there that he he made that film as well and that I'm 
suspect that probably would have an interesting relationship to debates about autism as well. Yeah, I actually listened to um, David Hartley doing a podcast about that film um, with, I can't remember what the what the other podcast is, but that definitely should be linked to because it's the same director and also, you know, another film that's interesting to look at in this way. It was a good conversation. And it's interesting that he kind of, his filmmaking career touched on these outsider characters. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, a nice end on the mention of David Hartley. <laughs> so uh, just like to thank Andrew for being our guest on this podcast uh, and for such an amazing suggestion for this film and also to hear about your work on Pablo, which has been so significant. Um, that's it from us. Goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary, University of London and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.